0: In this story, the story of Ruth, and this story is a story about real people, real life, and these real people, their real responses when life turns real bad, and it turns real bad real quick. And so, as we have been looking at the story, let me catch you up the speed, and then we're going to race on because there's some things that are interesting that we're going to look at today. We looked at this family, Elimelech. Naomi, Malon, and Kilion, that's this family, that's their names, they are literally in Israel, namely in Bethlehem, during some of the darkest days of Israel's history, the days of the judges. Everybody does whatever they want to do. It's a free-for-all. And so God's discipline, his loving hand of discipline comes upon the land, famine breaks out, and here's what we find. We find a lemmelech, dad, the dad of the family, decides to lead his family into compromise, And the way he does that is he uproots them and moves to a place God said, don't go there, Moab. He said, don't go there. They worship pagan gods. They would sacrifice children to those gods, but he chose to compromise and his choice to compromise led the rest of his family into a compromising situation. We find that his boys married forbidden women. They married Moabite women, which God said, don't marry those women. What's interesting is 10 years of their history is condensed to about seven verses, chapter one, right? And what we find at the end of those seven verses is that Elimelech dies, Malon dies, Kilion dies, and when you get to chapter one, verse seven, you have three widows, Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth. We find out pretty quick, Naomi becomes bitter. She starts to blame God. She's very focused on herself, comparing her pain, all those kind of things. She is so bitter that she literally, as she hears things are going well in Bethlehem, she says, I'm going back there. Her daughters-in-law want to come. She turns and says, no, you'd be better off where these demon gods are and they're sacrificing their children. She tries to convince them to go back home. Orpah listens to her. She's like, yeah, you got a point. I think I'll head back home. Ruth, on the other hand, says, I'm going to anchor my hope in the God of your people. That's what she says. Like she says, your God's going to be my God, your people, my people. And so she clings to hope. When we get to the end of chapter one, we have Naomi changing her name. Literally now it's Mara. I'm a bitter old woman. We have Ruth clinging on to hope. And we have them in Bethlehem trying to eke out a living. That's what's going on. When you open up chapter two, you have Ruth, and I love her character. She looks at Naomi and she says, your God has a way of taking care of people like us that are marginalized and poor and vulnerable. And the way that he put in play to take care of the marginalized was this idea of gleaning. And so she says to Naomi, I think I'll go glean in a field and hope I find favor in that person's eyes. Just so happens, we said that she's gleaning in the field of a guy named Boaz. And pretty quickly, we see things escalate because Boaz notices her. Boaz, the CEO of the company, goes and talks to her. Beyond that, he's really generous to her, tells her, don't go to a different field, says, I'll protect you, and then invites her to his table where he serves her. He sends her home with two weeks of wages. It becomes very evident that Boaz is very generous to her. And all of a sudden, we see the story begin to escalate, but chapter two, we said, kind of ended abruptly because Ruth goes home to live with Naomi. Boaz goes home, and it's almost like a commercial break that lasted a week. That's where we pick it up in chapter three. But I need to see your eyes for a second because here's what we got to do. We're going to look at chapter three today. We're going to look at the whole chapter, but I need you to buckle your seatbelts. Can we do that? Because in chapter three, we're going to look at some eye-popping stuff. In fact, in fact, for y'all that grew up in church, okay, let me just talk to you for a minute. We're about ready to go where no Sunday school teacher ever went, okay? <laughs> I guarantee they didn't put this on the flannel graph board. I guarantee. In fact, I'm not being funny now. If you have your children with you, we have an incredible Power Kids ministry. And so I just wanna warn you that if you have your kids, this would be a great Sunday, okay, to check that out. Otherwise, you might have some interesting conversations over lunch, and don't blame me, but we're gonna dive into some interesting things in Ruth chapter three. Now, here's what I tell you to do every week. I'm like, hey, read your Bible in color, not black and white. Read it like a video, not like an audio. And so I continue to do that. I wanna encourage you to read your Bible that way. But this week, you may have to put a rating on it, okay, when you read it, because this is some interesting stuff. And so, when we read chapter three, there's gonna be four things we're gonna notice. Four things. I'm gonna give you all the answers to your blanks right up front, right? You, you have, I'm generous. Say thank you, Dan. Go ahead. Well, you're welcome. I appreciate you saying that. Here's what we're gonna find in chapter three. You can fill these in, and then we'll look at them each one by one. We're gonna find some confusing advice. You're gonna see that pretty quick. After that, we're going to find some really risky obedience. Some head-scratching obedience. Like, they did what? Beyond that, we're going to see that there is a couple character tests involved in in, in this story in Ruth chapter 3. And then we're going to end with a bigger story. Confusing advice, risky obedience, character test, a bigger story. You got your Bibles open? Let's roll. Ruth chapter 3, verse 1. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi... Said to her, my daughter, I must find a home for you where you'll be well provided for. Just for sake of context, about a couple months have passed between chapter 2 and chapter 3, most commentators say. But you can forget that. Here's what she says, verse 2. She says, now Boaz, look here a second. Do you get the idea Naomi's wheels have been turning for a while? Like like Naomi wants to open up a new business, right? Naomi'snewbeginnings.com, right? The new Hebrew dating service. Because she's going to play matchmaker, right? Raise your hand if you're in the room and you're married to somebody as a result of somebody playing matchmaker. Anybody as a result of that? That's interesting, right? Yeah, Naomi's got a plan that she wants to work. And so look at what it says, verse 2. Now, Boaz, with whose women you've worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight, he'll be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. She's like, hey, he's going to be on the threshing floor. Remember that. That's interesting. And so I'm going to tell you where he's at. And so I have some advice for you. Now, I love how practical the Bible is. And at this point, Naomi becomes very, very practical. She looks at Ruth, her daughter-in-law. Don't forget, when Boaz met Ruth, she was all pitted out, sweaty, hair in a bun, all that stuff. So Naomi says to Ruth, take a bath, right? Go wash. I mean, you can't make this up, right? Put on some perfume. You want to kind of smell good. And get dressed in your best clothes. Good advice, right? I mean, if we just read that, it's like, man, that's pretty good advice, I mean, you don't want to stink when you go to meet the guy, right? I mean, you want to smell good, look good, put on your best clothes. Can I look here a second? If she had stopped there, my job this morning would be so much easier. Like, like th- th- it'd be a piece of cake. Like some of you are like, what? Yeah, let's read what she says next. Mother-in-law is giving her daughter-in-law some advice, and she says this to Ruth. Then I want you to go down to the threshing floor. Now, How many of you all go to the threshing floor every day, right? So we're like, what's that? Here's what you need to know. They just had harvest, right? This is payday. Like they're they're separating the wheat and the chaff, and and these guys are down there, and they're getting paid. And, and, And God had blessed Bethlehem. And so there's this celebration going on. And so I want you to go down there where these guys are getting paid. They're really living it up. And then she says this, but don't let him know you're there until he's finished eating and drinking. You don't mess with the guy before he's had something to eat, something to drink. If shit stopped there, maybe. Then she says, when he lies down, note the place where he's lying. Look here a second. If you're a parent of a teenage daughter, never say that to your daughter, okay? Like, you ain't gonna say that to her, right? I've never said that to my daughter. But she says, I want you to know where he's laying down. Then go, okay, and uncover his feet. Say what? And then lie down. Listen, read this in color because by now you're like, she said what? And then she says this. This is the part that just like I'm like, she said what? He will tell you what to do. I bet he will tell you what to do, right? you tracking? It's like, what in the world is Naomi saying? She tells her, go to the threshing floor. You're like, is that really a big deal? That's a big deal. You know why that's a big deal? Because there's a bunch of guys just got paid. They're celebrating. They're living it up. They love the fact that the prophets have come in. And listen, when you read your Bible, it was a time when sometimes women who were prostitutes, knew there were a bunch of guys who just got paid feeling really good and they would show up at the what? Threshing floor. Yes, that's the way I feel right there. I'm just saying. (laughs) Couldn't have said it better myself. In fact, if you don't believe me, if we keep doing that, we're right on cue, right? I like that. Hosea 9-1. Can we throw that up there? Because I don't think they believe me. Here's what it says, don't rejoice Israel, don't be jubilant like the other nations, for you've been unfaithful to your God. You love the wages of a prostitute at every, say it out loud with me, thrashing floor. Did Naomi really tell her to do that? It's like, what is she saying? Can we at least say this? Look here a second, that Naomi is giving, at minimum, her advice is questionable, I have done more reading in prep for this talk than I think I have ever done for any sermon in my life. You want to know why? Because commentators are all over the place. Like people who write about this, they're all over the place. Some of them say, Naomi gave her this sinful, scandalous advice. Oh, can't believe that. And then there's others, and I don't really buy into this, but other commentators, they look at it through a rose-colored glasses. They're like, oh, Naomi trusted God, and she never did. And it's like, Really? Here's what I think. Can I give you my take on this thing? Because I think there's some interesting things here. I don't think there's any reason to sanitize this. Like, in fact, I think we got to be careful of sanitizing it. This is really odd advice, questionable at best. And yet, I don't think it's all terrible. I'm somewhere in the middle. I don't think Naomi gives her all bad advice. Let me tell you what I mean. I can appreciate the fact that Naomi, remember, she's bitter all of a sudden she has this glimmer of hope because you can see that because she starts dreaming and she starts thinking about somebody other than what? Herself. And she gives this advice to Ruth as though, hey, I don't want you, listen close, to get paralyzed where you're at. I want you to move into the story of the rest of your life. It's as though her advice to her is like somehow, Ruth, you can get paralyzed in the pain of your past, and I don't want you to stay there. I want you to move into the story of your future. Not bad advice, is it? In fact, it might be worthwhile writing down. Here's what I want you to write down under that point. Simply this, the pain of my past can paralyze my present and keep me from walking into my future. And maybe for some of you, that's all you need to hear today, and that is what your take home is. Because the truth is, I think Naomi gave her some good advice. Is that sometimes our past and the pain of our past can paralyze us and keep us from walking into the possibilities in our future? I'm looking out here and I know some of your stories, some of them I don't know. But sometimes this happens with the pain of grief. That's what's happening here. It's as though some commentators think Ruth was still adorning the mourning wardrobe, and Naomi was saying, Take that off and put on something nice. As though she was saying, okay, you've mourned long enough. Here's what I know. We have this thing called grief share here. It's an incredible, incredible ministry. And it simply is for people who are grieving the loss of somebody near to them. But here's what I know. For some of us, we can get paralyzed in the grief of that loss and never move into the future. I love the fact that Naomi looks at Ruth and said, I know that you were married to my son, and yet I'm looking at you and saying, now it's time to move on into the rest of your story. That's interesting to me. You see, sometimes, can we just be honest? Some of you, maybe you're there. Sometimes we don't want to move into the rest of our story because of the pain of our past because we think somehow it's going to disrespect the person that we lost. Can we just be honest about that? And that's a normal, natural feeling. And yet, I think it's good Naomi looks at her and says, hey, it's time to move into the rest of your story. God didn't take you. You're still here. You got more story. For some of us, it's the pain not of our grief, but the pain of our guilt. The pain of our guilt, remembering who we were and what we did, paralyzes us and keeps us from walking into who we could become. And maybe that's some of you in the room. Maybe you're like, oh, Dan, I have this story. I bet you do. But sometimes the pain of our past can paralyze us. I don't think that's terrible advice. But what gets interesting is this, is that Naomi devises a plan. Like if she had just said that to Ruth, they'd be like, that's pretty good advice. But this plan, she gives her a plan that None of us in this room would ever advise our daughters to do. Nobody, if you would, I'd like to talk to you. Nobody's going to do it. And you're like, what's going on here? And I think Naomi starts off with good intentions. But I think what happens is she pretty quickly cuts some serious corners. You're saying, Dan, why do you feel that way? Great question. I'll answer it. Well, first of all, I think that way because Naomi doesn't have a great track record. Can we just say that? Like she joined the hand of her husband and they went into forbidden land. She watched her sons marry forbidden women. And then she's the same lady who looked at these two daughters-in-law who were willing to go back with her and said, no, 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 why don't you guys go back to your demon gods where they sacrifice kids? Like she doesn't have a great track record, right? Beyond that, when you look at this advice, you see a woman trying to control her situation. And in controlling her situation, listen close, she takes shortcuts. Like she tries to do in private what was supposed to be done in public. And she becomes so impulsive that she skips steps. We're going to find out in the story, there was someone else that she should have gone to first. But when I take shortcuts, I skip steps. Beyond that, this is interesting in the story, there's this undertone that maybe you didn't pick up on when I first read it. But it's almost like she's looking at Ruth and saying, wait till he's had something to eat, wait till he's had something to drink, and go there and lie down. Look here a second. Let the Bible come alive. I can't make this stuff up. That's exactly how the Moabites began. Genesis 19. You know how they began? Lot had two daughters. These two daughters got nervous. They what? Took a shortcut. How's our line gonna be preserved? So the shortcut they took was, let's get dad drunk. I told you to take your kids out, right? And they went in and had sex with him, and one of them produced a child that became the father of the Moabite nation. And there's almost this undertow where Naomi's like, well, you know, it's kind of the way Moabites do things. And there's nowhere any mention of God in this advice. At minimum, this is extremely confusing advice, and it makes me think this. I want you to write this down. That when I take shortcuts, when I take shortcuts, I ignore God's directions. I ignore God's directions. I think to myself, I need to control this thing. And when I think I need to control it, I cut corners. Guys, the Bible is full of people who take shortcuts. You ever hear of a guy named Abraham? God says, I'm going to bless you with more than you can count. Aaron's like, awesome. (whistles) When? I'm going to bless you, I promise. All right. (whistles) Not fast enough. Hagar. Guys, we're still living that nightmare. You See what I'm saying? Like like, like the, the Bible is full of this stuff. People who take shortcuts. Guys, isn't it so easy to take shortcuts in our life? Isn't it? It's easy to take shortcuts. It's like, you know something? I'm single. I don't know that God's gonna bring anybody along. Maybe I ought to help him. Maybe I ought to control this thing, right? It's easy to take relational shortcuts. It's easy to take shortcuts in our parenting, in our marriage. It's easy to take financial shortcuts. Here's what happens when I take shortcuts. When I take a shortcut, I ignore. I ignore God's directions in my life. Now, here's what's interesting. She gives very confusing advice, but Ruth, look how she responds in verse 5. All right, I'll do whatever you say. So she went down to the threshing floor. I cannot tell you how dangerous this was, what she was doing. Do you remember Boaz telling her in chapter 2, I'm going to tell the guys not to lay a hand on you? Why would he say that? Because guys had a tendency to lay a hand on those kind of gals. Here's a bunch of guys just got paid. They're celebrating, and she goes down to the threshing floor. She did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain. He's simply protecting his profits. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and then she lay down. Can you picture it? Are you reading this in video? It's like, wow. It begs the question. I asked this to myself why would Ruth do that? Like, why in the world would Ruth do everything she said? And I came up with a conclusion. Listen close, this is my conclusion. Because Ruth is a relatively young follower of God, right? She's not been following God that long. She's a young believer, a young follower of God, the God of Naomi. And she has connected her life, her spiritual life, her journey to who? Naomi. There's a sense to which, all right, that's what you think I should do? Boom. Boom. Guys, that was a sobering reality for me because here's what it made me think. I want you to write it down. There are people listening to me. There are people listening to me this morning. Oh, 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 there are people listening to you this morning. There are people who have tethered or connected their spiritual journey to you. And what you say is what they're listening to. In fact, parents, parents in the room, I Double dog. Guarantee it. There's somebody listening to you. You know what they're called? Kids. In fact, I had a dad go out for a service. This is what he said to me. It's worth writing down. He said, Dan, I don't know. When it comes to what I say, I don't think my kid cares. But when it comes to what I do, they pay attention. I thought that's pretty good. I mean... When your kids get to be teenagers, you ever offer them advice and like, ah, right? But they're watching, right? You see, this made me think something. Naomi's the, that's who Ruth has. Like, okay. It made me think of, I, I get emails like this from time to time. Parents, just, just listen close. I had a parent email me, a father email me, and he said, hey, Pastor Dan, haven't been to church for almost a year He's got these little kiddos, and he said, it dawned on me after a year, something one of his kids said to him. He said, I've been telling my kids for the last year that God doesn't matter and church isn't important. He said, I never said the words, but he said, for the last year, I've been telling my kids something. I'm like, wow. You see, when I read this story, I'm like, there are people listening to me. It begs the question, I wonder what they're hearing, right? Right? Like, Ruth's like, okay. It also made me think something else. I want you to write this down, and then we'll race on, and that is this, that not all advice is good and godly. (laughs) I don't know if you know that or not, but maybe you need to write it down, and maybe I need to explain what I mean by that, that some of you, I just want to talk honestly to some of you, in room. I just kind of want to put my, my, uh, I don't know, coaches, pastors hat on for a minute and just talk to you. Some of you are in counseling right now. Don't raise your hand. Let me tell you, the stigma that counseling has, let's wipe that away. I think everybody could benefit from some good counseling at some point in their life. So can I just say that? But some of you are in counseling. Can I just tell you something that not all counsel and counseling is good and godly counsel and counseling? Like I'll have people come and say, well, I'm going to so-and-so for counseling. Why? My insurance covers it. Find a better reason. I know, I know, it's costly, I get it. Some counseling is. I get it. I remember as a young pastor, I'll just tell you this story, just this is for free, but I was young and dumb. Had a couple in my church out there, we were about 40 big. So I had a couple and they needed some extra help and I sent them to a counselor, but I didn't know the counselor, it was referred to me. I sent them to this counselor and things went from bad to worse, to worser and worsest. They got bad real quick, and I said, what's going on? Well, I don't know, you know this. And finally, they said, what if you came with us? I said, well, you better see if the counselor's okay with that. Counselor said, sure. I went to their next counseling session. By the way, I don't want to come to your counseling sessions, okay? But I went to theirs. I got there, and the counselor said, met the counselor. She's great lady, nice. She said, Pastor Dan, you can have a seat over there in the corner. She set a timer, one hour exactly. She said... You can sit over in the corner as long as you don't say a single word. I'm like, okay. So I sat in the corner and I listened. 55 minutes passed. When 55 minutes hit, she looked at me and she said, we have five minutes left in the session. She said, I'm going to give you the last five minutes. Is there anything you want to say? This is what I said. I looked at her and I said, can I say anything? She said, you can say anything you want. I'm like, that's your first mistake. Because I'm going to just tell you what I did. I was young, but I knew enough to do this. I turned to the couple and I said this. I would not listen to anything that woman just told you and I would never come back here again. Why? Because not all advice is good and godly. Let me, since I'm already in trouble and I'm feeling really good because I got my sweater on today, I'm going to (laughs) just keep going. Cool? Cool. Some of you are struggling in your marriage. Okay, I'm going to give you, I'm, I'm going to tell you something. And you're you're struggling now. Some of you, if there's physical threat and he's doing this, that I get it. Get out of there, get out of there. Some of you are struggling though in your marriage. Maybe two followers of Christ. Maybe you're just not getting along. And you're going to a counselor, and their first their first response to you is get a divorce. Listen to me. If that's the counselor's first solution, I don't care if they're Christian or not, get out of there. Get out of there. Now, I realize there's extenuating circumstances, but not all advice is good and godly. Can we at least say that? Not all. And so I've got to somehow be discerning. So I want to look, say, who's listening to me? And then I want to be discerning at the who I'm listening to. All that leads to the fact that Ruth responded and listened to Naomi. I think there's another reason she listened to Naomi, and I think it's this. This is just my opinion. I think she knew Boaz better than Naomi. She had watched Boaz in action. I think she knew something about her character, which leads to verse 8. Can we just read the rest of this story and then make a few observations? Verse 8, so she goes and she uncovers his feet, and she lays down, and she's at the threshing floor in the middle of the night, Something startled the man. I bet his feet were cold. That's what was going on, right? He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. I saw one of you make a face over here. Yeah, read it. Read it as it's written. Like, we got ourselves a situation here, right? All of a sudden, we have character that's tested because Boaz pretty quickly, like, rolls over, feet are cold, and it's like, there's not just a woman there. There's a woman and she looks very nice and she smells good and I'm feeling good. Had a good supper, payday, middle of the night. No one would know. Everyone else seems to be indulging in this. And on top of that, her mother-in-law suggested this, right? It's like, who would blame me? Like, I just was in that situation, it just kind of happened, I don't know. Do you see what's going on? There's a character test about ready to happen here. You remember what Naomi said to her? He'll tell you what to do. All of a sudden, the plan has to go to plan B because he didn't tell her what to do, did he? Guys, look at this, verse 9. He says, who are you? I love that. We're going to come back to that. She said, I'm your servant, Ruth. Ruth. Then she says something, spread the corner of your garment over me since you're a guardian redeemer. Sounds weird. Here's what she's saying. She, literally, this would have culturally made sense. She's saying, if you do that, I'm simply saying that if you want to, to marry me, I'm okay with that. But what she's saying is even more significant because she uses the word that she says, spread your garment, is the same word used in Ruth tw- 2, verse 12. Look at it. When Boaz says to her, may the Lord repay you for what you've done, may you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, here's where the words match, under whose wings you've come to take refuge. Here's what she is saying to Boaz, are you willing to be God's answer to my prayer? That's what she's saying. I've come here to seek refuge under God's wing, and I'm wondering if you're willing to be the instrument of that. I'm wondering if you're willing to do what it takes to do that. If you are, I'm willing, is what she's saying. Boaz says, Lord, bless you, my daughter. This kindness is greater than that you showed earlier to Naomi. You haven't run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. Now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I'll do for you all that you ask. He changes the question. All the people of my town know that you're a woman of noble character. Listen. I think Ruth looks very stunning she smells good and I think Boaz noticed that can we not like put some sort of bible pretend on like I think he notices that but he looks at her and he says you know what absolutely is a sounding to me is your character that's interesting and then he says we got a problem Although it's true I'm a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another more closely related, and he has dibs first. According to their law, he had right of first refusal, to use our terminology. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty, his obligation, as your guardian redeemer, good. Let him redeem you, but... If he's not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I'll do it, lie here until morning. So she laid his feet until morning, but she got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. In case you didn't believe me, this was a place that women didn't want to be. Boaz helps us understand that. And he wants to protect her purity and her reputation. So look at verse 15. He also said, bring me the shawl. Now, you like, what in the world's a shawl? That's a woman's sweater vest is what that is, okay? <laughs> Bring me the shawl you are wearing and hold it out. And when she did, he poured into it six measures of barley. I love this. And placed the bundle on her and she went back to town, he went back to town. Look here a second. This ain't your mama's shawl because he put into her shawl 80 pounds of barley. I love Ruth. She's a strong woman. You don't mess with Ruth, right? And I love Boaz. You know what? He's a generous man. He's a generous man. What's interesting then is when Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, how did it go? My daughter, and she told her everything Boaz had done for her, gave me these six measures of barley we're taking care of for a long time. Mom, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed, He said, then Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man won't rest till the matter is settled. Woo, what a story. Can we at minimum say there are two people in a very compromising situation? Can we at least say that? And in this compromising situation, we have two people whose characters are tested. Listen close, listen close. Your reputation is what a lot of, all the other people think about you. Your character is who you really are when no one's watching. It's midnight at the threshing floor. Who could blame us? No one would have to know. Tracking? Like we have two people whose characters are tested in a real way, and we see their real response. And here's the deal. If your character hasn't been tested, you haven't lived very long because it will be. Life is a series of character tests, and I think this story gives us some questions to ask when it comes to our character. I want you to write them down. We'll be done. First is this. I love the fact. We're going to jump in the deep end, so so just be ready. I love the fact that when Boaz rolls over, he doesn't tell her what to do like Naomi said. It's not what he does. You know what he does? He asks her who she is. Boaz saw a woman with a story and a name, not just an object and an opportunity for a good time. Boaz, guys, I want you to listen to me. Young guys, Boaz was not just looking for a good time, he was looking for a good life and a good wife. You see, here's the first question I think I want to ask when it comes to my character do I see people or do I see objects? When it comes to the opposite gender, do I see people or do I see objects? Men of character will see women as people, not simply objects. Can we just talk about something serious? I had somebody after first service say, I've been going to church all my life and never heard that talked about. <laughs> Shame on churches for not talking about But we got to talk about it. Pornography makes objects out of women and men. Pornography, both hardcore porn, soft porn, commercial advertisement, objectifies people. That's why we call them sex objects. When we see a pretty body, and make lewd comments about it, we see objects, not people. When we stare at pictures of body parts, we're seeing objects, not people with stories. Parents, if you're in the room and you have boys ages eight and older, don't assume, well, they've not been exposed to that. Statistics say that around age seven or eight is when majority of boys will be exposed to pornography. This is the conversation that you have. And if you go to them and say, I can't believe you're breaking one of God's rules, you'll miss the opportunity. First week we said, It's not about breaking one of God's rules. It's about ignoring the relationship of a God who loves me. I'm talking to a room full of fellas and I know that some of you are struggling. You're not weird. You're not the only one. In fact, I looked up some statistics. Porn sites receive more regular traffic than Netflix, Amazon, and Twitter combined. 35% of all internet downloads are porn-related. At least 30% of all data transferred across the internet is porn-related. Child porn is a $3 billion industry. Porn is global, $97 billion industry globally, $12 billion domestically. I don't need to keep reading the stats, but I can tell you this, that it's not just a guy problem. That pornography among women and particularly young teenage gals and early 20 gals is escalating quickly. Quickly. You say, what's the problem with porn? It only turns my back on a God who loves me and wants what's best for me. Can I just tell you this? It makes objects out of people. Men who are addicted to porn are more likely to assault, be aggressive. Statistics bear this out. And women who are addicted to porn are more likely to be victims of assault. Molestation. See, here's the deal. Boaz looked at her, and he didn't say... Here's what you can do for me. He said, who are you? What's your name? You see, men of character see people, women with a story, with a name. Women of character see men that are people. They have a story. It doesn't just happen in how we relate with the opposite gender. It's just relationships in general. The guy who pushes the broom in the factory you work at, he's a person with a story. The waiter who waits on you this afternoon, he's a person with a story. See how that works? That's just an object coming to take care of you, didn't fill my water enough. They're a person with a story. People of character realize that, I love that about Boaz, but the story goes on because I love the fact that Ruth brings God into the equation. Naomi didn't, but Ruth said, Boaz, are you willing to be the answer to God's prayer? And it begs this question. I want you to write this down. Am I waiting for God's answer to my prayer? Am I waiting for God's answer to my prayer? Let me just, for the sake of time, gals, can I talk to you gals for a second? Are you willing to wait for a husband who will be God's answer to your prayer? You're saying, well, how do I know that he would be that guy? Thanks for asking. Let me explain. Because the answer, God's answer to that prayer would be a guy who would lead you like Jesus. Serve you. A guy like that that's an answer to that prayer, God's answer to that prayer would be a guy who loves you like Jesus sacrificially oh, you know, man, I'm kind of getting up there. I'm 26. (laughs) Let's be honest. You feel a little panic. I was like, what's, is that guy out there? Are you willing to wait for God's answer to your prayer? Guys, can I ask you a question? Are you willing to be the answer to that prayer? Are you willing to be the answer to that prayer and lead like Jesus, love like Jesus? Guys, are you willing to wait for a gal that's going to be God's answer to your prayer? You're like, well, what does that kind of gal look like? Well, I'm glad you asked. I'm happy to answer that. Here's God's paradigm for marriage in a sentence worth writing down. Share it with your kids. Share it with anybody. Even if you disagree with me, write it down. God says this, men, I want you to lead like Jesus. I want you to bend your life to serve, sacrificially love for the sake of your wife And then he created wife, and he said, that's the helper, and that's not demeaning. That's what God calls himself. So look for a husband who leads like Jesus. Men, look for a wife who helps like God. Be willing to wait. Be willing to wait for a gal who's willing to love you unconditionally, encourage you, support you. I love the fact then that Boaz doesn't just look at her. He turns over and he doesn't look like, man, you look good. I think he noticed that, by the way. He wasn't blind, okay? I think he noticed that, but he didn't simply do that. He, he, he rolled over and he's like, wow, it's Ruth. And, and then he says, I, I realize something about you, Ruth, and that is there is something way deeper than the fact that you're a pretty gal, it begs a question when it comes to my character, and I want you to write it down. And it's simply this: Is my beauty simply something that's only skin deep, or, or is 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 what makes me important simply skin deep? I will tell you this: Those of you young adults and teenagers in the room, a relationship that is based simply on flirting and flaunting the outward appearance is going to be flimsy. It just will. You see, character attracts character. It doesn't just play out in the husband-wife relationship, the dating relationship. It plays out in general. Parents, what are you doing to encourage your kids to be people of character, not just the coolest, most popular kid in school? I'm going, to give, I'm going to give you something I used to say to my kids. Not everything I've said to my kids is worth writing down. This might be. I said it to them from the time they were little and on. And, and I've heard them repeat it back to me. So if you have your pen and you're a parent, write this down. I used to tell my kids from the time they were toddlers on, I would rather be kind than cool. I would rather be kind than cool. They didn't always believe me, trust me. But you know why that is? Some of you know this. Some of you are out of high school now. You know this. You know why? Because cool wears off. Can I get one amen in the room? Just one. Cool wears off. Like, who knew I'd be wearing a sweater? You "It cool wears off. But see, kindness is about a character that's willing to go deep. Boaz said, you're a woman of character, which is the same word, Proverbs 31, a wife of noble character who can find she's worth far more than rubies. Many women do noble things, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceptive. Beauty is fleeting. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Is my beauty only skin deep? Can, I, I'm already in deep. Me, can I just go a step further? We live in a, we, I feel this. So this is, this is us talking in my office. Can we just do that? I feel better if I have that scenario. So I'm gonna sit down and talk to you. We live in a culture I'm going to mess with some of you, I know, that is so focused on our bodies. Stay with me. I work out, love it. Love working out. I'm not against working out. So focused on our bodies that we don't have any time to develop our character. So if I can get some guy to notice... and I'm size, I don't even know how girl sizes work, but if I'm size, whatever, and whatever, and you look at me, and whatever, it's like, okay, cool, take care of yourself. But we are so focused on that, that we sometimes don't have time to focus on what lasts, what matters. Like, Boa's like, you're a woman of character. I'm not saying don't work out, that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying, gals, what are you doing to strengthen your character? Guys, what are you doing to strengthen your character? I love the fact that Boaz says you know Ruth it's just not that easy there's another guy who we got to talk to first and it makes me ask this question do I do what's right or easy a man of character will do what's right not what's easy some of you gals that are looking for a husband if he's not willing to do the hard things before you get married what makes you think he's going to do the hard things after you get married If he's not willing to run through the hurdles before you get married, what makes you think he's going to after? Employees, if you work for a boss, do you do the right thing or the easy thing? Do you cut corners? Hope the boss doesn't find out, clock out a little bit early. You see, your character is who you are when no one's watching. No one knows. Students, do you do the right thing, the easy thing? Character is something built over time. And then I love the fact that Boaz tells her to wait till morning and then go back home. You know why? Because he wants to protect her purity and her reputation. And it makes me think this question Am I concerned about others? Am I concerned about others, their purity and their reputation? One of my favorite things I get to do every week is on Sunday nights, I get to hang out with a bunch of young adults. We're going to be hanging out again tonight, 7 o'clock, Norton Middle School. If you're a young adult, I'd love to meet you. I'd love for you to come hang out. But I have tons of conversations with young adults, teenagers, and here's a question I get asked a lot, and it's not just a teenager, young adult question, by the way, but they are at least willing to be real enough to ask it. They'll come and say, Pastor Dan, my boyfriend and I are doing such and such. Do you think we're crossing the line? You've heard the question. In fact, you've probably asked it. And here's my response. My response is this. If you're asking whether sexually or ethically, morally, am I crossing the line, I'm probably asking the wrong question. Because then I'm saying, I wonder how close I can get before I get burnt. And I would simply say to a gal, that's the wrong question. But the right question is, is he leading you to Christ? And I would say to a guy, is she helping you follow Christ? Then we don't have to worry about the line. You see how that works? It's the wrong question. And I will tell you this, gals, I feel this. I'm very passionate because I'm a father of a gal. So I'm not even going to ask permission. I'm just going to be this way. If you're with a guy who wants to lead you to the line, he's not concerned about others. He's not concerned about your purity, your reputation. See how that works? Boaz was, he's like, man, you shouldn't even be here. Like, who told you? My mom, you know? And then what's interesting, and then I, I got I to gotta end this thing. What's interesting is that instead of, I, I love how this story ends, because instead of him getting something from her, you fill in the blanks, instead of him getting something from her, okay, that's all in here, he's giving something to her. Do you see that? Like he blesses her with 80 pounds of we're taking care of you, it begs the question, am I a giver or am I a taker? You see, a man or a woman of character is going to give life to others, not drain it from them. It's going to put life into them, not drain life from them. Here's what's going on, and then we're done. There's some pretty confusing advice. We can say that. Risky obedience, like Ruth's like, Okay. And then there's a test of character, which we all will face. But it all points to a bigger story. If you leave here today and you're like, oh, man, Pastor Dan, I'm really struggling. I'm going to have strong character. You will fail unless you see the bigger story in Ruth. And the bigger story points to the story of God because the story of God says this, that every last one of us in this room was a foreigner, poor, spiritually bankrupt, vulnerable in need of someone to redeem us spiritually. And the story of God says this, Jesus is the savior who refused to take the shortcut to pay for our redemption. He's in the garden. He's saying, Father, if there's another way, show it to me. No other way became known to him. And so he walked the path for our redemption. You know why? Because he looked at you and he didn't just see an object. He saw a person. And he said, I'll raise my hand, and I'm willing to be the answer to the prayer for your greatest need. And I will take no shortcut. I'll do exactly what's necessary, even to death on a cross. You know why? Because he is the ultimate giver who refused to be a taker. And he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped but made himself a servant and died a death on the cross. Listen to me, when the the power of that story explodes on the scene of your life and you realize that you are the recipient of that, all of a sudden what happens is it drives you to become a person of worship who responds to that with character. Ruth chapter three. The Bible's not boring. The Bible's very relevant. And God loves you. Father, I pray for my friends as we just end. No no song, no emotional plea. We just want to talk to you for a second. I know some of the people in this room. I don't know all of them. I know most of them. I don't know where they're at, but... In the quietness of this moment, there's no music playing. This is not an emotional plea. This is just you, God. I'd love for you just to get in a space where you can clear your thoughts, bow your heads. If you don't want to close your eyes, just bow your heads. Just close off everything. Have you ever said yes to Jesus? He looked down the tunnel of time. He saw you. And he said, I will do what's necessary so that you can have forgiveness of your sins and be part of my forever family. And this morning, you can say yes to him. Say, yes, Jesus, I want you to be my savior. I want you to be my Lord. And I want to say yes to you the rest of my life. Man, if you pray that in your seat, somehow let me know that. Somehow let me know that. Email, call, put it on your connection card. My guess is there's others of you that this whole story, this chuck full of stuff, leans into you. Some of you are paralyzed in your past, and God has a whole story of possibility ahead of you. Others of you, it never dawned on you that your kids are listening to your life. And this morning, somehow, there's something that has awakened within you. Others of you, you're getting advice that isn't good and godly. And for some of you, you're in the middle of that character test right now. And no one else would know if you stepped across the line. And yet this morning, God, I pray for those that are in that boat, that they would run into the power of the gospel, the power of who you are, and that it would explode in them. And that instead of seeing how close to the line they can get, they would see how much they can run into you. God, thanks for a real story about real people responding to real situations. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.